You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to ODI. I'm, I'm sorry we're running a bit late. I, I, I did promise Jeff I wouldn't mention this, but we've spent the past few minutes trying to track down Jeff's, uh, Jeff, Jeff's mobile. Found it. And um, it, it turns out Jeff is brilliant on a whole range of global poverty issues, but not so good at uh, managing his phone, as it turns out. But there we are. They're related. <laughs> So let, let me start by welcoming you to what is the launch of a new ODI Global Challenges series of, of lectures. And the, the aim is really to mark 2015 as, as a really critical year for international development. The series will bring together some of the, the world's top thinkers from uh, academia and policy and the business community to discuss with a wider audience some of the big issues that are on the agenda for 2015. Today's event will focus on the role of international public finance in development. And of course, we know that one of the great challenges for the ADIS Financing for Development Summit in July is to unlock the huge potential of private capital uh, as a force for change in areas like infrastructure, the provision of energy, and many other areas. But it's important also to remember the, the vital role of international public finance. One of the great challenges that we face in 2015 is to put in place the mechanisms that will address what are the key development challenges of our time. And those challenges include extending opportunity to the world's most marginalized people and the most disadvantaged countries. And of course, international public finance has a vital role to play in addressing that challenge. Uh, I want to welcome also, we have over 400 uh, online viewers today, which I, I think breaks the record. It may be related to your presence, actually, Jeff, who, who, who knows. But welcome to all of you who are joining online. If you want to join the conversation on Twitter, the hashtag is Global Challenges, using our handle at ODIDev, D-E-V. Uh, let me say something before I introduce Jeff about the running order today. The first hour of this meeting will be dedicated to uh, a presentation from Jeff and uh, questions and answers. We'll then have a coffee break at 10.30. I was actually with Jeff yesterday at a <laughs> private sector meeting, and they had an uh, extraordinary spread during the coffee break. You probably missed it, but they had these wonderful cakes and scones, and uh, you're going to get nothing like that here. <laughs> but there, there will be biscuits and coffee in, in plentiful supply. Um, and then af after that session, we'll have three panelists who will join uh, Jeff to explore in, in more detail some of the, uh, some of the issues. Before I give the floor to Jeff, and I, I think Jeff really doesn't need an awful lot of in introduction, but he is director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University. He's co-author of uh, a report which is going into the uh, ADIS financing discussion. He's an advisor to the UN Secretary General. He, he's also a prolific journalist and a prolific author. And I think his, his book, 
uh, Commonwealth Economics for a Crowded Planet, was really one of those books that did more than anything to bring together the poverty agenda and the sustainability agenda, which is right at the heart of what we're trying to achieve in 2015. Um, I, I was actually asking Kofi Annan yesterday, if you're introducing Jeff, you know, what, what would you say? And he sort of shrugged a bit and he said, well, Jeff's basically a force of nature, so uh, I think I'll le leave it at that. But I, I did want, want to say one thing, which I, I, th I think you, know, you could say many things about Jeff and his he, he, fantastic publications record in, in, ma in many areas, but he's really someone who has dedicated his formidable and I think unique intellectual advocacy and communications capabilities to, to, you know, to some of the defining challenges and issues of our day, in particular fighting global poverty. So Jeff, welcome to ODI, you. thank you, and over to you. Kevin, thank you very much, and what a pleasure to be here with you and with your great leadership, Kevin, on all of these uh, issues that are the favorites of ours together, and with many, many friends in the room uh, and uh, online, uh, I, I hope and expect as well. So. Uh, it's a great opportunity at the beginning of this year to be in the right place to discuss uh, these issues with uh, key uh, thought leaders uh, in the global development effort. This is the year of sustainable development. If we miss it, we've really lost an opportunity that comes around once in a generation. And given the uh, difficulties that we face in the world, we can't afford to wait another generation because we've basically spent the last two generations since the Stockholm Summit on Environment and Development in 1972 not acting on this dual agenda of development and environment. And we're up against the wall now. 2015 really is the our chance in this generation to get this right, and it's the last chance quantitatively to avoid uh, fundamental mishaps for humanity. Uh, if it's a 2035 conference on sustainable development as the make or break, we've already broken uh, the uh, intergenerational pledge and the safety of the planet. And I can assure you, having been in this process for a long time now, uh, more than uh, almost two generations myself, you don't get chances like 2015. They, uh, you don't make, you can't make them uh, happen. It happens by dint of the calendar uh, that various waves uh, of uh, different frequency have all come together this year so that the climate negotiations, the 70th anniversary of the United Nations, the end of the Millennium Development Goals, uh, the uh, adoption of the agenda from the 20th anniversary of the Rio Summit all have fallen on this year. And we're going to have a six-month period from July through December to reorient the direction of the world economy. Now, I can assure you the world economy doesn't want reorientation. Uh, and isn't uh, aware that it needs any reorientation. Global capitalism is a juggernaut. Uh, it's an enormously impressive juggernaut. Uh, it has been an enormously impressive juggernaut for two centuries. Uh, 
uh, if you want to read the highest uh, panegyrics uh, of uh, praise of the dynamism of global capitalism, there's no better place than the Communist Manifesto in 1848 uh, to uh, read about the uniqueness of this system which will break down all walls uh, around the world to create a global economy in its image, uh, as a couple of uh, relatively well-known authors once said. Um, and that's true. And we now have a $100 trillion world economy. Uh, it is uh, enormously productive. The share of the world living in extreme poverty is at the lowest point in history. Uh, probably around 16% of the world living under the World Bank's definition of 16% uh, of the developing world living uh, uh, below the World Bank's poverty line. We don't know because the World Bank is uh, characteristically four years late uh, in providing data. Google could probably tell us what the poverty rate is this morning uh, if uh, we asked. Um, but uh, in any event, this is a juggernaut. Juggernauts move forward something uh, uh, akin to uh, Newton's uh, first law, uh, and, uh, which is uh, that uh, they will continue in motion in a given direction, uh, except if a force is applied with uh, enough uh, force uh, to uh, be proportionate to the mass and the needed acceleration. And we absolutely need to apply uh, a force to shift the direction of the economy, not to undo the dynamism, not to stop the development, not to doubt the development, by the way, because despite the 2008 crisis, the world economy is still growing at 3 to 4 percent per year, despite the slowdown of China, which is a slowdown that is part and parcel of, uh, of China's success of raising income levels, it's not a sign of catastrophe, it's a sign of success. The world economy is growing at more than 3% per year. And if we're not dumb, that's a big if, uh, it will continue to do so. Uh, so that's good. Economic development is actually within reach. People like Larry Summers who say we're in an age of secular stagnation should get out of their office once in a while. Uh, and uh, actually go to developing countries uh, and see what it's like. This is not an age of stagnation. Uh, this is an age of rapid development, actually. Uh, and people who worry that we've run out of technological uh, advancement, like Robert Gordon, should really understand that uh, IT is uh, more than, uh, more than uh, posting your Facebook page, whatever you feel about that. Uh, and nothing against that. Uh, it's a very deep transformative force for delivering health, for delivering education, for delivering infrastructure, for business development, for financial access. So we're living actually in a time of tremendous dynamism and tremendous potential. But the world economy is not on a sustainable development trajectory. And that is a huge, huge danger for the world. So our question is how to keep the dynamism. And I think that uh, although, God, I hate to say it because it'll be misinterpreted a million times, uh, 
but I'm going to say it anyway because that's how I've lived my life. Global capitalism is a good idea is what I'm going to say uh, because uh, actually it can deliver the things we want. It can deliver the end of poverty. It can deliver uh, broad press prosperity. It can deliver environmental sustainability. But it's not doing that right now. And 2015 is crucial for getting this right. So why isn't it delivering these things? I think that there are some fundamental points that uh, need to be uh, acknowledged, and that's what the Sustainable Development Goals need to address. First, it is leaving still the hard pockets of poverty behind. And while there has been improvement in uh, the conditions of the poorest of the poor over the last 15 years in many places, not enough, not fast enough, and not even remotely close to what we could have achieved had we put our minds to it. Wherever we have invested in making progress, we've had breakthroughs. We talked yesterday about uh, malaria and AIDS, uh, where there was not one person on AIDS treatment in the year 2000 in the world on a donor-funded program. And now there are <laughs> well over 10 million, the one count is 13 million, uh, on donor-supported uh, uh, AIDS treatment. That's just one example. Uh, there are countless examples. When you invest, you get it right. But we're leaving a lot of people behind right now. It's absurd. It's a tragedy. It's an anachronism to have extreme poverty in the 21st century. We're a $100 trillion world economy. The average output per person is $13,000 at international prices. And yet we have people that are struggling to stay alive day by day. This is completely wrongheaded, and it's a nonsense from an organizational and an ethical and a geopolitical and an economic point of view. So that's number one why we're not on a sustainable development course, because we have not made basic breakthroughs that we can make. Second reason is that the popula world population continues to grow too rapidly, and especially in the poorest countries and especially in Africa. And this is a threat on many fronts, first to ending extreme poverty itself in these places with rapid population growth. They're under tremendous ecological stress, economic stress, financial stress, social stress, and yet Africa's population is on a path by UN estimates to quadruple this century. No thank you. Fertility rates above five, which is Africa's average right now, five, around 5.2 total fertility rate, is incompatible with sustainable development. And we need a rapid, voluntary reduction of fertility rates. Fortunately, we know just how that comes about. Keep girls in school. Enable them to finish secondary school. Ensure access to family planning services, to universal health coverage, and you'll have a demographic transition on a voluntary basis like we need. So that's a second sense. A third sense that is quite complicated is that uh, there are indeed pressures within the world economy from globalization and technological change for widening income inequalities. 
and a dramatic disruption of labor markets. It's really true that artificial intelligence, robotics, the information revolution is changing the labor markets in fundamental ways. So there are pressures for widening income inequalities that are real and are poorly elucidated right now. Because unfortunately, a lot of academic study only works when you have a long enough time series to look backward because it's not so good at looking forward. If you look forward, it may be good, but every, all your colleagues say, prove it, prove it. And you can't run a regression to prove it necessarily. And so we're not so good at new trends or breaks in the history as we are in looking backward. And this is a break, but we don't know it yet. And the papers and the analyses have not been done yet. Now, then there are two kinds of political systems. They're the kind that uh, Ambassador Gary Peterson, who is uh, sitting in the front row, represents Scandinavian social democracy, uh, which says if you have widening income inequalities, you lean against that to try to ensure that all of society moves ahead together. And then there's my, the political system I live in, the United States, which says if you have widening income inequalities, great. We can even get richer if we give ourselves tax breaks, make this contribution, spend a billion dollars uh, by the Koch brothers to uh, give further tax cuts and so forth. And so you amplify the inequalities rather than narrowing them. So part of the process is first to recognize the underlying dynamics which come from markets and technology and then to understand the political filter through which uh, these pressures are transmitted into net outcomes in the end. Piketty is right about the widening inequality, but he's wrong to think that it's a law of markets. Just look at Scandinavia. It's no law of markets. It's about politics and it's about choices. Then the fourth reason that we are not on a sustainable development trajectory is, of course, the environmental crisis. We've been warned about this for a long time. I took my first economics class 43 years ago. Okay? Swallow that. <laughs> uh, and uh, the first book that I was assigned in freshman Ec 10, we called it, at Harvard College, uh, Economics 10 was actually in the fall of 1972, Limits to Growth. And I read that and then my professor said, well, we're assigning this because this is an example of bad research. Uh, look at this model. There are no prices in it. You know, how can you say something about the world economy that there will be shortages? Don't they know that if there are shortages of this resource or that resource, the price will rise and that will cause a shift and don't worry so much, we were told. And then we were told there was this old guy named Thomas Robert Malthus who said silly things back in 1798 uh, about population, but <laughs> we've also proved that that's not the right way to think about the problem. So that's how I was trained back in 1972. The endless horizons, the absence of limits to growth, uh, and a rather blithe uh, sense that uh, all comes out right in the end. 
Now, we should understand it's nothing like that. Things could come out right, but they don't necessarily come out right. What I was told back in 1972 that prices will uh, make sure that things come out right has a little bit of logic to it. It's one of the some points of wisdom uh, of uh, economics that uh, one could call Smith-Pagu economics. Smith said that markets would give prices. Pagu said sometimes you have to correct the prices to make them send the right signals. And nobody has put the price on CO2 yet, for example, in an adequate way to send the right signal that we're on a path of self-destruction through CO2 emissions. So limits to growth turned out to be spot on on the CO2 emissions forecasts and on the risks of overshooting, which was the basic message back in 1972. And the basic message was geometric growth relative to a finite planet, if unattended to, can lead to overshooting and disaster. That's a really smart message. That was a darn good book. I asked my students this year, who's heard of this? None, none of the students had even heard of the book. For us, it was a pivotal moment uh, in, uh, in uh, intellectual thought that came along with the UN conference in Stockholm. And it was formative for me in this odd way, but I am recovering from my ECTEN education uh, every day. Uh, it's taken 43 years to learn to round out the picture a little bit but uh, it's a very important piece. So we have geometric growth against a finite planet. And some people say, well, that's an intrinsic, uh, illogical uh, idea that it's an impossibility. Uh, <clears throat> I think that that is an extreme view in an important sense. Others say there's no problem because uh, if you actually study moder most modern economics, there are no finite factors in the mathematical equations because they really mess up things. Uh, so uh, you don't even learn about limits to growth because even in the basic growth model, there are no limits because there's no physical reality in those models. And so you can be so well trained that you don't even see the obvious. Or there's a middle ground, which I believe is right, which is that growth through ingenuity is real, but you have to attend to the real limits and risks that you face. And that means directing technological change, partly through prices, partly through corrective prices, and partly through other instruments, such as directed, public-supported technological advancement in key areas such as renewable energy to get this right so that we can have growth but respect the planetary boundaries that have their finite limits. So those four items, I believe, the entrenched poverty, which is very serious where I was two weeks ago in the Sahel or in Ethiopia where I was last week, we need to address that as a real phenomenon. And we need to address the population issue because we're now 7.3 billion people on the way to 9 billion by 2040. And potentially 10, 11 billion. This is no good for quality of life, 
especially for the poorest of the poor. And thank goodness that Pope Francis opened up a discussion about this himself last week when he said being a good Catholic doesn't mean you have to breathe like rabbits, comma, excuse the expression, said the Pope. Uh, that was his expression. Well, he was making an important point that there is a responsibility to be able to raise children in a way that they're healthy, with proper nutrition and proper education. And a poor family cannot do that with five, six, seven children, and a poor society cannot do that if, on average, there are four, five, six, seven children per household. So that needs to be addressed. And the inequalities coming from technological change need to be addressed. And the environmental catastrophe that we're already in the midst of in this age of the Anthropocene needs to be addressed. That's the sustainable development agenda. It's not exactly the sustainable development goals because the SDGs haven't taken on population. It's so sensitive. Nobody wants to talk about it except the Pope. It's interesting. Uh, and so I think that this is uh, a, a very uh, um, important time that we can face these issues. Now, just to conclude, to face these issues, we have to understand their analytical basis, their systems dynamics, and a basic point which keeps economists employed after all the other things they do wrong, which is that you need resources to solve problems. That is the most basic economic truth. Of course, then economists stumble badly by thinking resources only come through markets, whereas resources come through all forms of uh, social interaction, including volunteerism, including social action, and including tax and transfer policies or government outlays. They're all part of uh, resource allocation. And we do not get success without resources allocated to these problems. Now, let's be absolutely clear. We've got all the resources we need to solve these problems. And if you do the actual calculations about what resources are needed to ensure that every child can get at least a secondary education in the world, that everybody can have access to basic health services, that energy can be produced with a low carbon uh, energy system, and so forth, it is absolutely the case you can't reach even 5% of GDP incremental costs to be able to ensure all those good things. The costs are absolutely manageable. Indeed, the joke of it is that about 1,645 people, if well-chosen, could solve this. Now, of course, the well-chosen is the list on the Forbes billionaire list uh, this past year these 1,645 individuals had a combined net worth of $6.4 trillion. Okay, that's a good start. And if you were to uh, put that as an endowment for sustainable development, that would 
at least at Columbia University's rules, that would be a 5% payout. And that would be uh, $320 billion a year annual flow. So if we could just get Bill and his friends together, Bill, Warren, uh, uh, and, and uh, uh, a few others, uh, to Carlos and a few others together, um, they could do it by themselves, which would be a good project, actually, at least as interesting as making Facebook or new Microsoft Windows system or something. Uh, you could actually get the world onto a sustainable development path. And $320 billion would actually do it because the rest would come through private flows. We need trillions. But the $320 billion of true high-quality ODA would actually get the job done to make sure that no one's left behind in this and that climate financing could be done and that the uh, universal education could be accomplished and so forth. So anytime people think this is beyond measurement, beyond possibility, beyond systems, uh, beyond financial reach, just has not done the arithmetic, pure and simple. This is fundamentally a matter of will. This is not a matter of uh, capacity. It's a matter of will. Now, what do you need <coughs> for the will to do this? Basically, we need two things, and that's why I'm a believer in this year. One, we're learning a lot from neuroscience that the essence of consciousness is attention. We don't know exactly what human consciousness is, but we know that it's something like the ability of the brain to be attentive to its own brain state. You're conscious when you are attentive to your own brain state. Most of what happens we're not aware of because we're not attending to it, but consciousness seems to be related to attention. And I would say at a social level, the key is attention, to say this is important. And so the sustainable development goal should be about attention. By the way, a committee output is not aimed at attention most of the time. So we have to take the 17 goals as they are and make them 12 attention-getting goals by restating them in a way that can get the world's attention. But that's the first part of the will to do something, is the attention. And the second part, I think, is the ethics. And that is that it's valuable to attend to these issues. That there is value in our lives to solving these problems. Not everybody believes that. There are sociopaths who believe the opposite. Sometimes they even come to power. But most people believe it. And that's why a social movement is key. Because what a social movement is, don't tell me about the accidents of the psychopaths and the sociopaths in power. Tell us about what people want. And that's what society needs to raise its voice. It's not about the preening of the politicians. That's their job to preen. Our job is to turn off the TV enough, get out in the streets, and say this is really important. 
and we want this done. And to be very clear on the message that the world really wants to end poverty. It wants to address inequality. It wants to keep the climate safe and to preserve the biodiversity. Now, I'll just end with saying that London, by history, has been the center of such social movements. Uh, and uh, it was London also, I think, more than any other place that made the Millennium Development Goals real and dynamic. And you have 200 years of experience of social movements. In the United States, we can barely get started sometimes. But uh, here you have 200 years. So use it. You've already used it to get every major party in power, every major party, I should say, behind uh, the, the basic idea of uh, 0 0.7 and this commitment and this kind of problem solving. And I would say that uh, the dynamics here help to put the Millennium Development Goals not only onto the diplomatic agenda but onto the world social agenda. And we need to do the same thing, and 2015 is the key year. Thanks a lot. Jeff, that was great. Thank you. Um, be, before I throw, throw it open to questions, or I, I ask some invited uh, audience to, to give questions, I want to ask you one thing, which I, I guess is the most obvious question of all. And I, and I know you're a, an optimist by nature, but when you look back to the MDG period, you know, the end of the <coughs> 90s, um, I mean, in retrospect, it, it sort of looks like a golden age for international cooperation. You know, we've, the, the goals were framed, you know, we created the global funds and, and so on. If you look at where we are now, you know, there is a, you know, if you use the, the attention analogy, we, we, we have a global leadership with serious attention deficit disorders in, in this respect. And I, I wonder, you, what do you think really are the prospects for a breakthrough in Addis and, and some of the big summits? I don't think 2015 intrinsically is any more uh, difficult. I think, in, in fact, it's uh, easier than 2000. Um, I was involved heavily in the public health discussions uh, from the late 90s to the early 2000s to uh, create the Global Fund, for example. There was nothing obvious at the time. Uh, it was uh, extraordinarily difficult even to get basic concepts in place. There was nothing obvious about uh, the Jubilee movement, drop the debt, uh, HIPIC. Uh, none of that was guaranteed. Um, we had two presidents that uh, either, I don't know if it's literal or figure, figure, only figuratively deficit, attention deficit disorder, but between Clinton and Bush, uh, George W., come on, that's really a problem. Uh, and uh, believe me, if you don't think so about Clinton, I'll tell you sometime. Um, and uh, they were not focused on this. And Bill Clinton was eight years in power, and not one person was on AIDS treatment anywhere in the world. Not a single person. The whole, and aid fell to the lowest level in US history under Bill Clinton. Because it wasn't that this was an age of global cooperation. This was the beginning planks of putting US unilateralism in place, even under Clinton's relatively benign uh, view. 
Uh, this was the unipolar world. You, you didn't have to give aid anymore. We weren't competing with the Soviet Union. So the aid budget disappeared. That's, from the U.S. point of view, a strategic budget, not a humanitarian budget. And so it went down to almost nothing. George W. Bush actually raised the ODA budget significantly as a share of GNP. So there was nothing obvious about the year 2000 except it was a great calendar date. You know, it was wonderful. And we had uh, a wonderful Secretary General. Uh, uh, Kofi Annan committed to that. We have a wonderful Secretary General today, Ban Ki-moon, committed to this agenda. But we have to open up the space and we have to reach out, which is easier to do now than it was 15 years ago, to leaders in Africa and Asia, Latin America, to say this is real and this is important. This is not a Western agenda, could never be, must never be. And we need to hear China's leadership on this to be very uh, absolutely clear about this because <coughs> China is either the number one or the number two economy in the world, depending on whose data you use. Uh, China is a vast power of global significance. It's also the most polluting country in the world by far, uh, not per person, but in the aggregate impacts on the world. So. Believe me, without China, there are no solutions in this. This is not China's timetable. If you think about Deng Xiaoping, one of the great leaders of uh, modern history, his timetable was give China basically another 30 or 40 years before to, to finish its development trajectory, then it can play a larger global role. And this global role is being put on China faster I think that China wants because China's got a lot of huge, hugely difficult internal development dynamics left for another generation or two. And yet it has to play a highly constructive global role right now before it wants to, in a sense. Not that it doesn't want to, it wants to be cooperative and collaborative and constructing, but it doesn't want to do it just now because it's got too many internal problems. But it has to do it now also. So we have to reach out to the Chinese leadership, to the Indian leadership, to other major countries to say this is universal agenda. It really counts. It fits the value system in every part of the world. It's part of China's harmonious society ideas. Uh, and it is compatible with visions all over the world. But it's very hard to have that global conversation. Nothing is harder in 2015, though, than in 2000. Uh, it's just that don't look to the United States to solve this. That's all I'm telling you. Uh, the U.S. is one of many countries now. It's militarily the most powerful. It's got the biggest surveillance system in the world, but it's not the biggest player in solving these problems necessarily. We need full global cooperation. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, I've got some invited questions. First, from uh, Joanna McDonald from DFID. Thanks very much for the opportunity to comment, and uh, thanks to ODI for this really interesting series of events, and of course to Jeffrey Sachs for those uh, really thought-provoking remarks. Um, so we in DFID are looking forward to the opportunities offered by 2015, and we really hope that we can find those breakthrough breakthroughs that you've 
um, clearly outlined the need for. Um, I'm in the Finance for Development team, so we're focusing on ADIS, and our focus at the moment is trying to develop an international offer to bring to the table um, at the ADIS conference and in the uh, preparatory negotiations. Um, we do hope that ADIS can open up and adopt a comprehensive approach to financing for sustainable development. I think it's really clear from what you've said that we can't afford to dismiss any uh, possible sources of resources for development. So we're looking at public and private, uh, domestic and international resources, and also really clear that the policy environment within the, which those resources are used is absolutely crucial for them to have um, the impact that they need to have. Um, we see in that agenda that there are a lot of uh, asks implicit on developing countries, so we would like them to be able to raise more uh, resources <coughs> domestically, we're asking them to attract greater private finance and so on, um, and therefore we think it's really key that we develop, so that we're not just in asking mode, that we develop an international offer to bring to the table, and at the moment we're working um, both within the UK across Whitehall to look at what the UK component of that offer ought to be, and also working with partners, partners internationally to try to make sure that um, others are doing the same. I'll be really brief. Um, so we see the two essential elements of that offer is ODA, which is completely fundamental to financing for sustainable development, uh, and then secondly, a kind of po policy package to support developing countries in doing the things that I've just mentioned. Um, on ODA, we're working closely with EU partners to try to press for a European collective recommitment to ODA and to a new uh, timetable. Sorry, okay. Um, I'd be really interested in your views on how best to make the case for ODA. How do we win people over? We see it as absolutely critical and fundamental. You've mentioned the need for China's leadership. How do you think we can best get traction and win people over to the idea that ODA is essential? Uh, and find the political momentum that's needed. And then secondly, on the policy measures, what do you think are the really key uh, ones that we should be looking for in that? <coughs> Thanks, Thanks very much. Um, Jeff, what I want to do actually is just that we've got yep. a, a, a couple more invited questions. Great, so, um, uh, From Linda McEvan. Sorry, Linda, where's... So Linda is chair of the uh, MEP Development Committee. Yeah, great. Yeah, hi, hi. I, I'm over here. Um, well, the European Commission should be publishing imminently the proposals for the whole of the European Union on the uh, means of implementation on the 2015 package. So we're hoping that to see a common EU policy going to those talks, just to comment on that. But I was interested in what you said about this unique opportunity in 2015. Um, in the European Union, it's been designated European Year for Development, which means all the countries are supposed to be working together, and this is part of the agenda to get things going. But it's interesting for me, because before I was chair of the committee, only from this year, only since July, I worked on climate change policies very heavily, on environment policy, and yet we didn't talk about the SDG agenda in that field of work. And in fact, I wonder how, how, I think you're right, we need a social movement. We need something like the Make Poverty History. But I'm a politician, and I'm not getting that in my inbox. I'm not getting people banging at my door, talking about the UN General Assembly in 2015, talking about the importance. So that's, I wondered, how are we going to, I mean, we're all here. We have to do that. That's not happening at the minute. My colleagues, in fact, don't know. And secondly, um, how are we going to link the two, the, the, the Addis, New York, and Paris, the climate talks. How are those things working, do you think? Thank you. And will the US actually come on board? Wonderful. Thanks. Um, Mark Goldring, who's head of Oxfam. Mark? Okay. 
Yeah, uh, York Times is an organisation that's very good at getting people yes. sending stuff to inboxes sure. of politicians. Yeah, yeah, so we'll, we'll get a set, um, mail out sent out today. Um, Jeff, could you tell us a little bit more up on the financing side, particularly about international taxation? Yeah. You know, you picked on your 1,600 people. Bill Gates responded to that by saying, I give away a lot of my wealth, but yeah. probably 1,500 of them don't. Right. So we've got the issue of domestic taxation, but domestic taxation without progress on the international side is always going to be limited. Where do you see the momentum and the possibilities there? Wonderful. Thank you. And the last advice, question, um, Alex Evans... Alex, so there we go. Um, Alex is a NYU Center on International Cooperation. Yeah. I think Thanks, based Kevin. in Addis Ababa right now. Hey, how are you? Um, if you imagine a kind of a feasible best case outcome from the Addis Summit, the question I'd be interested in hearing from you about is, what would you imagine to be the story that leads the following day's newspapers? And what do you think the summit will be remembered for with five or 10 years hindsight? So if we're looking back at Monterey, the story in the next day's papers would, I guess, have been PEPFAR. And with five or 10 years hindsight, we'd have been thinking, well, it really underpinned HIPIC and a rise in ODA. So what's the equivalent this time around in a best case scenario? Excellent. Great. Jeff, could I ask maybe if you could give relatively brief uh, response to that. I mean, I know there's an awful lot there, and it's that's yeah. difficult to do, but I, d I do want to try and take one round from the wider audience as well. Should we just continue with Should we do that? Okay. Yeah, and then okay. I'll give a, yeah. L l let's do that. Forrest, the is going up. This, we'll start over here. Rob Yates from uh, Chatham House. Um, Jeff, you, you sort of mentioned the importance of political commitments, and I think this is absolutely essential. I mean, it's all about sort of uh, political will. How well do you think the, the current sustainable development goals are going to be good for, for inspiring political commitment because a lot of them read as sort of a bit wishy-washy and, and nebulous. Dare I say it's even a bit hippy-dippy, uh, but certainly that's the case with the, the health one. So what, what do you think can be done to sort of really tighten them up and make them look attractive to political leaders? Thanks, Rob. There's one right behind you while the mic's over there, actually. <coughs> Thank you. Jonathan Glennie from Save the Children. I, I buy your call for um, a lot more international public finance, um, but my question is, do you think there are... Um, issues about very low-income countries receiving a lot more international money. Um, basically, the, the, the question of um, flooding their economies. Yeah. Is, is that a problem for you? The way that I get around that is by saying, yes, we need a lot more international public finance, but it should also go to some of the big middle-income countries to support infrastructure, climate finance, and all that. But in your paper, you make it quite clear that it should be very much focused on licks. What I'm worried about is then, you know, the political Im implications of that. Okay. Thank you. One, one right here, behind you, James, actually, first. So I'm, I'm, I'm working my way across the, across the room. It's Steve Podmore of Transform Global. Jeff, you said um, uh, a couple of things that I think are really critically important. You said you need, uh, we need resources to solve problems, and you said we have to get attention. The likes of the Koch brothers and other special interests have a lot of resources, and they spend them on very effective communication to divert attention uh, and, and to confuse. So my question is, how important is the effective and corralled resources for creating a better narrative and being relentless in how that better narrative uh, is uh, selling what's positive rather than the opposite. Okay, I'm going to take one last quick one from James. Sorry, you only say who you are. All right, James Cameron, uh, chairman of ODI. Um, I'm interested in the connection between domestic finance and mixture of public and private finance for big transformations like access to energy. Yeah. And we're getting some good signals from major economies like India 
that the uh, solar revolution is an access to energy. It's just as much <coughs> to do with fairness and justice as it is to do with renewables and, and, and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Could you just make some observation on how we move that agenda forward? Maybe specifically what kind of instruments might blend the forms of capital for that uh, energy transformation, not least in Africa. Okay. Um, I'm afraid I'm going to have to cut the, this round of questions. We, we are going to have Jeff uh, a part of the next session, so there will be an opportunity to continue this discussion. But Jeff, the, the, there's a hell of a lot to cover yes. there, but it may be just Great. give us an initial So I, I'll try to organize the, and I hope I touch on almost everybody's, and then I'll come back, but focus on the Finance for Development conference, what could be achieved, what are the highlights as uh, I would like to see them. First, uh, this has to be a conference about both public financing and private financing and their blend for sustainable development. So this is uh, both about mobilizing official or public finance and about uh, transforming the financial system in a way that addresses these issues more effectively, the private, private sector financial system. Both of those are on the agenda. And we know that we need both public and private investment to solve these problems for several reasons. First, when it comes to very poor people, markets will not pay attention, at least if they're smart, because they won't get paid. So the reason for financing is to help poor people get out of the trap of their poverty to meet their basic needs, ensure their human dignity, and escape from poverty. That's the idea of ODA fundamentally. And we need public financing also because a lot of what is, needs to be invested in, if it's large infrastructure, for example, is at least partly public goods in character. Uh, it's either natural monopoly or it's network externalities or it has other uh, non-rivalness uh, features that mean that it cannot be efficiently provided by the uh, public, by the private sector. And you just have to go back to uh, a wonderful book in 1776, uh, book five uh, of uh, the Wealth of Nations to read about uh, public works and why they need to be supported by, by government. So this is an old story. We need, and we need in FFD both of these things because we're aiming for trillions of dollars of financing for infrastructure, and we're aiming for hundreds of billions of dollars of financing for social services and basic needs. And both of those need to be well reflected and also blended because these are always complex mixed institutions with targeted delivery purposes. And this is the biggest weakness of academic economics, which is it does not teach the institutional richness of how you actually move resources to address human needs. That's fundamental part of what economics is about. But who learns that? That's complicated mess. It's not, and, and it's not taught. And so this is, but this is the real business that we're in is designing institutions that can move resources to solutions, whether it's public or private resources, whether it's through taxes, donations, philanthropy, 
or profit-oriented activity and to understand when different parts of that system work and how they work. You cannot ask a business to be a philanthropy, basically. It's not in, in, in their blood. But you can first steer, direct, identify the wider responsibilities, stop the bad stuff uh, through Pigouvian uh, corrective uh, pricing, and mobilize public financing where private financing does not sit. This is basic public economics, but it is not in the bloodstream of uh, how we teach or the rhetoric of our political systems, actually. Um, so, of most political systems. Uh, now, what does that mean in practice? First, ODA, we need it. We need to keep mobilizing it. We need a wider set of actors for it. We need to bring China into the multilateral aid system. China's a wonderful donor. It's building a lot of incredibly valuable things across Africa right now. It's building power plants and roads and infrastructure. I want China to be part of a multilateral system. So we need to expand the number of donor countries. There are a lot of high-income donor countries that are not DAC members. We need a wider forum beyond the OECD, a global forum for development finance. And that could take many forms, but it should include a much wider range of actors than the DAC. And this is one part of it. Bringing, making sure that 0 0.7 applies not to just the DAC list, but the whole high income list. We would propose bringing the upper middle income countries formally into the multilateral aid process by saying have a goal of 0.1 percent of GNI. It's not just the high-income countries, it's also upper-middle. In this world, if you're an upper-middle-income country, you're in good luck compared to being in a lower-middle-income or a poor country. So do something for the rest of the world to help make this process of sustainable development work. Let's go to Bill Gates, literally, and say with the giving pledge, make the giving pledge part of the sustainable development agenda. Let's get the giving pledge not just to be give half your wealth to some place for good causes, but for the world's causes. Because that's actually a lot of money. And Bill Gates single-handedly, or uh, with four hands, because Melinda's there uh, together with him, uh, have made a huge difference in public health. But where are the rest? Let's get them involved. And let's really go talk to them now, day by day. Carlos Slim, save global education. Why not? And there are 1,645 doors to knock on. <coughs> Bill Gates can help. He has all the email addresses, knows a lot of them. He and Warren uh, could uh, really uh, accelerate our process. But they should be contributing. And that's not small money. That's not small money. That's large money. And it's good. And there are a lot of people that would like to do things that don't know what to do, how to do it, what the partnership is, even what we're talking about here today. And so I think we need to reach out and really help that process as well. 
Then we need a, the private sector part of this to be serious. This is part of the offer. How, and here's my general claim. Take a map of Africa right now and put on the fiber, the highways, the rail network, the ports, look at that, and then fill in the lines of what a sustainable African economy, middle-income continent would look like. It would have a lot more connection than it has right now. And then ask the question, how can this be financed over the next 20 years? And the answer is most of that is private financing or public uh, borrowing for infrastructure but with a fiscal plan ahead through public sector tariffs or blended finance. What we can't do is leave hundreds of millions of people without electricity any longer. First theorem of development, there is no development without electricity. Impossible. Second theorem is PV has come down so much in cost, everybody can have electricity. Third theorem is the world's best solar energy by far is the Sahel, the poorest place in the world. I call it the revenge of the desert. Maybe someday all our energy will come from the poor drylands today. But we should be thinking of that map and saying, and NEPAD has helped make that map, we will finance this map over the next 20 years, we being the international capital markets in this case, with the blended finance, with the new institutions, with the public sector institutions, with the green banks and the national development banks and the uh, development finance institutions and the MDBs. These are specially, special agencies that understand both finance and development issues. They're great. We need them right now. They need to tap large-scale capital and transform it into a generation of infrastructure building. By the way, it's good business. I love a recent agreement, for example, that Denmark is putting as a country, indeed, you could say, through the Danish Climate Fund, putting a 375 megawatt wind power project in northern Kenya. It's Vestas, it's uh, Danita, it's uh, the Danish budget, uh, it's, uh, um, it's a Denmark pension. Uh, so it's public, private, uh, in the best way, with the specialized development institution, the Danish Climate Investment Fund, for some really, a really good project. It's good for the country, it's good for its exports, it's good for its leading technology, it's good for uh, environment and so forth. It means we have to rethink, by the way, this tide aid principle, which is a, was a bad principle. By completely untying aid, we also untied the political support for aid. Because our companies should sell good products to these countries and that should be financed as well. So we need a very creative way to move a lot of funding for large-scale infrastructure. And it is really true. Every child should have health and education 
and every household should have electricity. That's really important. And it can be done. It's absolutely within technological reach. So we should come out of the FFD with that part as well. Then the last part is, as Ted Turner says, he's one of our great supporters uh, of the Sustainable Development Solutions Network. He says, solving the world's problems is easy. Do, do the good things and stop doing the bad things. Um, and this is really good advice from a really, really, really good businessman and philanthropist. And the bad things we're doing are we're financing large new uh, uh, hydrocarbon projects up until recently. The fall of oil prices has been wonderful from the point of view of stopping Arctic drilling, rethinking the uh, oil sands projects in Canada and so forth, maybe even torpedoing uh, Keystone if, it, if the, these prices could stay down long enough. We need for that not to come back. And Ambassador, you know I love Norway completely. Uh, it's one of the greatest places and most wonderful societies. But I actually don't want Statoil drilling in the Arctic because we don't need that oil. We need your hydroelectric power, not the hydrocarbons, not the new high-cost Arctic hydrocarbons. Um, and so this is also part of what we need to come out of FFD, which is stop doing the bad stuff. That means disclosure rules. It means responsible investing. It means uh, that we get stock markets signed up on uh, principles of looking at climate risk, stranded asset risk, and so forth. And this, I think, is uh, also illicit flows, which has been uh, such a wonderful campaign of Oxfam. Uh, also, Oxfam is superlative in every way in its advocacy always, but these past few months just burning it up uh, in, uh, in the inequality agenda, the illicit flows agenda, the, uh, the uh, Robin Hood tax, all of that is part, should be part of this agenda. Uh, and it's really time for this. Now on the social movement, my one recommendation of social movement, of course I'm completely biased in this, but I believe we can make a social movement around sustainable development. It is the right concept because it means a holistic approach to society that balances economic, social, and environmental objectives. It's both an analytical approach and a normative approach. And it is the concept we want to convey. That's why I love the fact that these goals will be sustainable development goals, because every school child around the world, and I want that to mean every child around the world, will learn sustainable development as an idea as a shared value of a more holistic approach to our lives, which will be better lives, and which have a shared vision that encompasses every major religious tradition and every major uh, social tradition around the world. So it's a concept that the world can agree on and then relate back to its own cultural values or iconic values. And this is what I think we need to explain 
to people clearly that this is a concept that works for you. It fits within a moral framework and it can make the world better and safer just at the time that it needs to do that. And that, to my mind, is the social movement. Okay, Jeff, um, what do I say? Uh, it's not every day in ODI we, we have an inspirational call for action backed by a practical strategy, actually. And I think you know, that all of us need Could to Could I learn. say one more thing to Steve's question? Sure. Steve said one thing that is absolutely crucial for us, also for the social movement, so I just wanted to refer to it. The Koch brothers, we don't know how much money they put in into the 2014 election, uh, but a credible estimate that I've heard is about $450 million. And that fits with the rhetoric of last week when they said, we're going to, quote, double our effort to around $900 uh, million in 2016. This is two guys, by the way. Uh, they happen to own uh, the world's largest privately owned oil company, uh, and they're the two of the most polluting, uh, two of the most responsible people in the world for our crisis, especially because they finance uh, buying the Senate to stop uh, sensible projects. Now, the estimate is that their network put on 44, 000, about 44,000 ad adverti political advertisements uh, in the 2014 election. This is real stuff. It's uh, no joke, especially in the way the U.S. political system works where people may or may not vote. It is getting votes out, not necessarily changing minds, but getting people out to vote. And it's that margin, the base, that makes the difference. I don't want us to rely on two people giving uh, this, especially in this non-transparent way. But I do think using the social media, which is what social movements are good at, there's a lot of free stuff available. And we need to use that massively. And I like it that way. I want to see campaigns in the future in the US. We're not going to beat the money with money. We're only going to beat the money with no money, actually. By saying we take no money, we run for free. They're the ones that are on the take and win the elections that way. So it's got to be the jujitsu approach uh, of uh, do, doing it. But for the social movement, the communications message is key. We've got to win on every aspect of social media. Thanks, Jeff. Um, what I was going to say was that <laughs> you know, it, it was a really inspirational call to action and, and you know, with a strategy behind it. And actually, my appeal to everyone in this audience, you know, that we've got great researchers here, we've got people who are engaged politically, we've got aid agencies, we've got the business community, and we've got orga great organisations <coughs> like Oxfam and SAVE. And I think the big challenge is for all of us to come together to be part of this movement and to, and to think really strategically about how <coughs> we work together to achieve change. So it was an inspirational call to action, a practical strategy, uh, with great references to Adam Smith, Pigou, Marx and Engels. It's not every day we get this over here, so uh, you thank you, Jeff, for, for, for that. And I know you've got a quick meeting now, but we'll be seeing you after. Absolutely. Good. Uh, for the rest of you, there is um, coffee, biscuits and uh, refreshments outside. Could, oh, could, could, could I ask, I'm getting desperate messages from the back here. 
Uh, I know he says 15 minutes break. It's actually five minutes. <laughs> and that, that's a rapid turnaround time, so move quickly now. Get the coffee and then come back. Thank you. Okay, so let's begin this session. Um, I, I think this is going to take forward the discussion that Jeff started. We're very lucky to have three great speakers with us. First of all, Ambassador Gare Pedersen, who is Norway's permanent representative to the UN. He, he's also the co-chair of the third international conference on financing for development on ADIS, which is clearly one of the great strategic moments in, in 2015. He's got the very straightforward, not to say simple, task of framing an agreement between 189 countries in a 20-page document. Which uh, So we look forward to hearing from you uh, about that. Our second speaker, we're, who we're, we're really delighted to have with us, is um, Agre Tisa Sabuni who until recently I think was finance minister for South Sudan, but is now economic advisor to the president. And I think, you know, having spent some time with you in South Sudan, you know, I, I think it's one of the countries that illustrates both the youth challenges and the immense opportunities that Jeff was, was outlining. So we're very much looking forward to, to hearing from, from you. And the third speaker will be our very own uh, Romilly Greenhill, who's actually producing our, flag, our, our flagship publication to, for, the, um, for the ADIS conference, and, and she'll be speaking about that work and the role of international public finance in development. So uh, let me pass over to each of you have 10 minutes. I have, I have to keep the time quite strictly, mm -hmm. so uh, which I, I'll endeavor to do. Ambassador. Let me know when I have two minutes to go, OK? okay. Wonderful. Uh, really a pleasure being here. Uh, and uh, since uh, Jeff uh, talks so much about uh, China, let me also start with the China history. When I was a rather young diplomat, many, many years back, uh, in 1988, in January actually 1988, I had the pleasure of uh, being in a meeting with Deng Xiaoping in, uh, in Beijing with uh, my then Prime Minister, Guru Harlem Brundtland. And Brundtland was at the time working on our common future. Hmm? So uh, it was a great meeting with, uh, with Deng Xiaoping and, and with uh, Gru, as we call her. And the, what was the focus on the meeting? One thing, economic growth. You know, how could China develop to become what it should be, you know, a leading, leading nation fighting poverty and so on? And looking back, of course, uh, amazing what other Chinese uh, friends have been able to achieve. And thanks to our Chinese friends, basically we've been able to reach the Millennium Development Goal of halving poverty. You know, let's be honest. It's basically thanks to Deng Xiaoping's visions, you know, how to do this, that we achieved it. Then let's make a big leap to the election of uh, Modi in India last year. And if, you know, we have seen the prognosis that for the first time, most probably this year, India will have an economic growth that will be bigger than China's. It's, it's, it's a remarkable story. So what will be the success of Modi? You know, that will be if he is doing the same as Deng Xiaoping. At the time when I lived in China, 70 to 75% of the energy would come from coal. For Modi, 
50% of its energy will come from, relatively speaking, dirty coal, even if compared to China. So if Modi is to be successful the way Deng Xiaoping was successful, and if we are to be successful in 2015, then we have quite a challenge. Because Modi could do the simple thing. You could say, we are building on the energy resources that we have, hmm, cheap energy, and I will achieve what is most important for me, and that is fighting poverty. Why shouldn't India do it the same way that China did it? For me, that's the big issue. And we could uh, you know, also add to that, why shouldn't uh, Africa south of the Sahara do the same way as China did? Well, that's the big challenge for 2015. How can we fight poverty and how can we fight climate change? And you are here to tell me how I'm to succeed in bringing this process forward. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure being here. It was a genuine question. <laughs> it is a genuine question. But it's, you know, I'm you know, talking to so many different audiences these days. How many of you have read the Monterey document or the door? Wow, 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 wow. Really? Well, I'm going to ask a few questions. <laughs> <laughs> No, but the reality is that the Monterey Consensus is a remarkably big, good document, and it gives us actually quite a good basis to start working from. And, and what is sort of what is the starting position? It is that development is each and every nation's responsibility. Hmm? You have North Korea and you have South Korea. I also had the pleasure of visiting both North and South Korea, but I will not bore you with wonderful stories from both places. But you know, just look at the situation in North Korea in the late 1960s <laughs> and South Korea in the late 1960s. You know, they were very difficult to tell who would be successful. North Korea did a lot of bad decisions. South Korea did very good political decisions. So it's up to the politics. It's up to what kind of decisions do you make. That's sort of the starting point. But then we also know that to be successful, you need what we call then good politics. You need an enabling environment. And obviously, the key issue in Monterey is domestic resource mobilization. That's sort of, it's, it's, it's a starting point. But we also know that to be successful, you don't, don't only need a domestic enabling environment. You don't only need good domestic governance, you also need it at an international level. And that's where we will have the challenge. So we need to continue to mobilize you know, the private sector, which is also in Monterey. You know, economic growth uh, was a key in, in Monterey uh, uh, to fight poverty. Uh, it was also about the important role of FDI, the important role of uh, ODA, and the ambition of 0 0.7. It was the important role of trade as an engine for development. And of course, debt was discussed. What do we need? And many, many, you know, I, since so many of you have read the Monterey, I don't need to go through. What, but so, so what are then the issues now? How do we need to develop that? But we need to keep the basis. That's, that's the important thing. Then we need to add most probably something more on technology, on innovation and on capacity building. But I'll get back to that. But what, what's really the big challenge? The really big challenge is to address the sustainability issue. As Jeff rightly mentioned, it's not that that is something new. 
But what is new is that in 2015, after Rio, we have to talk about sustainability as something that will have to uh, go deep into all the different elements of a new consensus document that hopefully we will agree on in Addis. And that, for me, is the big challenge. You know, how to get climate sustainability into the document and how do we end up with something actionable, you know, something that is really that we can deliver. There are a few other minor challenges as well, and I, I, maybe I should just mention that. And that is, you know, how do we do, deal with states in conflict, uh, fragile states? Uh, it was really, it, it, it was there also during Monterey, but that's, you know, we all know that the real challenge in implementing the Millennium Development Goals in, in fragile states, that's where we have the challenge. And how do we deal with that also when we are fighting poverty and, 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 and climate change? So it's in particular, you know, how do we mobilize capital uh, for LDCs, you know, for small uh, island states? This is uh, something we have to address. Inequality was also an issue that uh, was discussed at Monterey, but I think it's no, it's really, is one of the really big issues. How do we address that? Uh, and, I, uh, I, and I know there are quite a few ideas out there, and I think we will hear more about it uh, later on. So in, and in the elements paper that we have introduced already, there are a few things uh, related to that. And then, of course, uh, it was there also during the Monterey, but the uh, volatility of the markets. You know, how do we, you know, what, what is sort of the, you know, can we do something at, uh, internationally on this, or is this... Uh, just dreams. And then South-South cooperation. And Jeff uh, mentioned, uh, you know, his uh, challenge to, to China and to the other emerging markets. That, it's a big issue. And how we, we need to get that right. And if we don't get it right, it could backfire. So I, I, would, just, uh, I would just mention, uh, mention that. So what, what in, in our opinion, should we concentrate on? ODA should unlock uh, uh, private resources, it should be used efficiently. You know, ODA is a relatively <laughs> small, 130 billion, but important. Hmm? But if we compare it with the trillions of dollars out there, we need to make sure that we use ODA in an intelligent manner. So that's extremely in, in, important. Infrastructure needs to be a key. And here we, you know, define infrastructure rather broadly. In, you know, it should include also energy, and on energy, I have, you know, we have some ideas. We can get back to that. Agriculture, we need to think about, uh, you know, coming up with something new. And then, as a foundation for all of this and successful development, we know health and education need to be key components. Challenges that I will not address, but we just highlight for you, is how do we align this with the climate conference coming up in Paris in December? And how do we work out a relationship with the uh, post-2015 agenda and the 17 goals? Uh, just two words on that and I will finish. In my opinion, uh, goal 17 is basically what we're doing in, uh, <coughs> in the Addis conference. If you read goal 17, it's basically, you know, Monterey light. So this, this is what we have to work on and deliver. The question is, what do we do with the other 16 goals? And that's why I'm saying we need to look at some of the big cross-cutting issues, like infrastructure, energy, and agriculture. But we're still early days. Uh, George Talbot, who I'm working very closely with on this, 
uh, we will hopefully be able to come out with a zero draft paper by the end of February. And uh, then we're looking forward to a continued close uh, cooperation and, and discussing, discussing this with you. Thank you so much. Ambassador, thank you. Could, could I, just before <coughs> passing on to Mr. Sabuni, ask you, I mean, maybe this is an unfair question, so don't feel obliged to answer it, but if, if you had to identify the one or two areas where you, know, you can see some transformative ideas that you know, might come out of, like practical transformative initiatives that might come out of, um, out of Addis, what, what, what would they be? Um, I, I should you know, be a bit careful, uh, you know, since I'm sort of going to co-facilitate co this and have to work out compromises, I prefer that good transformative ideas should come from someone else and I could <laughs> continue working on it. Uh, I, uh, those of you who know me well, know that we are working on a few ideas uh, and I hope that we will hear more about that uh, later here today. But I, I have sort of indicated, I think, the areas where I do believe we have to work on. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously, you know, inequality is a big issue. Uh, and I think if we address inequality in the right manner, it will appeal both to the least developed countries and to the emerging economies. And of course, it's also of relevance for advanced economies. So that, I think, is sort of is, is a key question. And interesting enough, so far in the discussions you've had in New York, there seems to be a consensus on that. The, the challenge is, you know, how, as you rightly said, how do we develop this into something that is really deliverable and could be transformative <coughs> in Addis? But I, I do believe we have a good chance of doing that. Okay, thank you. That's both very thoughtful and a very diplomatic <laughs> answer. But you, thank you. You, 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 uh, you don't get to be Norway's permanent representative at the UN without certain <laughs> attributes. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Sabuni, over to you. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Kevin. Good morning, everybody. Um, my short contribution is basically uh, an appeal for special consideration for fragile states in the context of the coming SDGs. So it's a case for fragile states. Uh, fragile states constitute a group of low or middle income countries who have made the least progress in terms of or that during the MDG era. They are countries in which extreme poverty is likely to be increasingly concentrated in the coming era. And this is why. In an era when aid allocations are increasingly being driven by results, it would be tempting for policymakers to focus their efforts on environments where policymakers, where progress is easier rather than devoting their energies and resources for fragile states where returns are at most uncertain and the risks are very high. However, the concentration of inequality and extreme poverty in hard to reach fragile states risks undermining regional 
if not global stability. Care needs to be taken in this area. The recent Ebola crisis has been a reminder of how linked we are to the rest of the global system. What do we do? So what happens with international public finance matters quite a lot. For low income, least developed conflict affected fragile states such as South Sudan, there is a clear and urgent case for both more and better aid delivery. In terms of more aid, infrastructure is probably the most single expensive challenge facing low-income, fragile states right now. By way of example, South Sudan, my country, has just 12 megawatts of installed capacity in the city, in the capital city, Juba. And only one paved road outside of the capital, which is just 200 miles long. Even though our landmass is larger than any country in Western Europe, but only 200 miles of paved road available outside the capital city and not more than 12 megawatts of installed energy capacity. These were areas that were missing during the, M the MDG era. It is therefore very positive that both infrastructure and energy are now part of the SDG, coming SDG era. However, international public finance to fragile states needs to be increased accordingly. If it tries to finance more priorities using the same envelope, it will be unable to make its interventions up to scale, particularly in terms of infrastructure and they will risk the undermining of the fragile gains so far made in terms of service delivery. In terms of better aid, it is clear that a country as fragile as South Sudan, sustainable development is contingent on peace building and state building, key components in the New Deal arrangement. This was an intuition that was entirely, entirely lacking during the MDG's era. It is therefore a positive step that goal number 16 of the coming SDGs is proposed to focus on peaceful and inclusive societies. But as the new deal between the G7 plus group of fragile states and all the major development partners recognized we need to improve how aid is delivered if we are to achieve peace. Too many decisions on where and how aid is spent unfortunately are still predecided 
in donor capitals. Too little aid is spent using national systems, accounting, and whatever it is, procurement laws, and so on. This undermines accountability relationships between the state and its people and delays the development of national systems such as health care. The Ebola crisis highlighted how much this matters. And the other day I was hearing as Ebola receipts, the infrastructure that came up, there's now the question of what to do with it because the requisite capacity to handle has not been developed. I think this one is a clear case in point. Too many times aid flows are interrupted by shocks. The dramatic fall in oil prices is another case in point. Yet we do know the path towards sustainable development in fragile states is not linear. It's quite complicated. In terms of better aid, I would want to cite the case of domestic revenue mobilization as a case in point. And there is none other, there's one aspect of better aid that I want to, which, that I want to, to, to handle or highlight here because it is very close to me. This is the case of domestic revenue. It doesn't feature in the coming SDGs. But I believe international public finance can and should do a lot more to support fragile states to become physically sustainable, each in its own right. In South Sudan, for example, our access to oil revenues in the past led us to neglect the development of our domestic tax base. Given the recent decline in oil prices, we are now paying a heavy price for this particular aspect of neglect. We have recently started to focus more seriously on domestic revenue mobilization, including the establishment of a revenue authority, just like our uh, neighboring countries, Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, do to modernize and professionalize our revenue collecting capacity. However, the reaction of the international community has not been resoundingly positive in this particular drive for a number of reasons. Yet government's ability to fund its own expenditure is a core attribute to state building and promotes accountability between the state and its citizens. I just want to conclude as follows. That the points have helped to highlight some of the challenges involved in engaging effectively in fragile states such as South Sudan and other members of the G7 Plus group. The SDGs helped lift the focus to include peace 
instead of building goals. It helps to factor the issues of peacemaking and state building into the agenda. But to deliver SDGs in fragile states needs the following. By way of summary, we said more aid is needed rather than less or the same. For infrastructure at scale, on in magnitudes that are commensurate with the task, in part to rebuild what has been lost or destroyed. Two, in sec uh, better aid, so that aid is spent on the highest, highest priorities in the country, and that aid doesn't undermine state building, that aid is able to manage the inevitable shocks like the oil uh, crisis, and aid helps to build domestic revenue. Finally, if the conference, the coming conferences in Addis and New York, a aid can deliver real changes in countries like South Sudan, then our efforts today will have been amply repaid. Thank you very much. Thank you. Actually, thank you also. You nailed it exactly at 10 minutes, which is a perfect timing. Could I just um, maybe ask you the same question I asked the ambassador in a slightly different way, that for you, what... If you had to say that, you know, that there is one thing for South Sudan that could really make a difference that might come out of Addis, what, what would it be? The case for infrastructure, roads and energy. That's very clear. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I should say, say also that you know, it's, it's been a huge privilege that we've had colleagues from our budget support initiative here working directly with you over many years. Yeah. It's been a great privilege to, to have that engagement with you and, and with, with your country. So thank you for that. Romilly, over to you. Okay. Um, is this microphone on or do I need to do something? Uh, no, it's on. Sorry? I think it's on. It's on. Okay. So I'm going to talk about the role of international public uh, finance in meeting SDG 1. And for those of you who uh, don't know that SDG is off by heart, uh, you probably should. Uh, but I'll talk you through what SDG 1 is. Um, just a couple of things to say before starting off. We are focused on international public finance and particularly uh, concessional international public finance. So that's largely ODA plus South-South cooperation and other forms of public finance that are provided on ODA terms. That is absolutely not to say that we don't think private resources or non-concessional international public financial resources are not important, but that's just what we're focusing on uh, for the uh, particular purposes of this report. Um, we also are looking particularly at finance. Now, again, we all know policies, means of implementation, and the wider context is important. But again, we can't look at everything. So just those sort of two caveats uh, before I start off around the, the focus of our, of our work. So SDG Goal 1, this is obviously from the Open Working Group uh, proposed set of um, uh, sustainable development goals. SDG 1 is end poverty in all its forms everywhere. And that's important. The all its forms every, uh, it, it phrase is important and the everywhere phrase is important, as I will uh, say very, uh, very shortly. 
And these are some of the sub-targets, again, only proposed at this stage, but this is what on, is on the current list under that. So obviously there's the, 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 the issue around extra eradicating extreme poverty. There's one specifically on social protection, which I'm going to talk a little bit more about in my presentation. And there's also critically one on resilience. And I think that's very important, particularly in the context of climate change, uh, which, I, again, I will come on to. And there's, there's uh, three or four others, but these were just the ones that I, I wanted to highlight. Now, I think the headline message from some of the trends that have been done, and these are looking at uh, different scenarios that people have, have looked at in terms of growth and inequality, is that zero poverty by 2030 does look achievable. Um, these scenarios are based on projecting forward historical growth rates and largely holding inequality um, constant. So the headline message is, we can do it. However, there are significant risks and I want to talk about three risks um, particularly here. The first is around growth. Growth has been fairly rapid. We are in a, an age of plenty. I can't remember what um, Jeff Sachs's exact uh, expression was. We have seen a lot of pro progress around uh, growth. However, it may not continue. And actually, if growth rates are slower, we're going to see uh, uh, smaller falls in poverty. Inequality has come up a lot this morning. I think it's an absolutely critical issue. Um, again, if inequality worsens, as it has done over the last two decades, that's going to have big impacts on poverty. And I think your point, Jeff, is that we don't actually know. It's difficult to project <coughs> these things um, around inequality. And the third big thing that's not actually included in any of the scenarios uh, that are listed here and in the last diagram is climate. The impacts of climate on poverty, I think, as I'm sure you all know, could be absolutely devastating. Um, and they are actually not included in any of these projections. So what you see in the chart here is these are scenarios just based on the range of options for growth and inequality. And what you can see is that actually in the worst case scenario, there's no real reduction in poverty by 2030. Um, I think, um, what was the phrase that you used? Um, I can't remember on the how ridiculous it is that we have poverty in the, yeah, the in the, uh, the uh, in the 21st century. If we still have it in 2030, we really will have failed. And what these trends show is that, in a good best case scenario, we can do it, but actually the risks are really really serious. So we need to do something about that. Um, this is a point that I think uh, our colleague from South Sudan made extremely powerfully, but there will be, by 2030, a huge concentration of poverty um, amongst fragile states. These two graphs, the first one shows um, poverty um, according to World Bank figures in 2011, and the bottom, the largest, um, the, the one actually that's border, uh, largest in the 2030 graph is in sub-Saharan Africa. If you look at the next uh, graph on the right, the chart, that's 2030, pretty much all poverty will be in sub-Saharan Africa, and that is predominantly in, in fragile states by 2030. So if we're thinking about IPF um, for the SDG area, we are very much thinking about um, uh, IPF in fragile states, which is why your points, I think, were uh, particularly important, and I think the ambassador uh, mentioned this as well. We also need to think about vulnerable groups. As of now, about two-thirds of poor people are in ethnic minorities, and about three-quarters are in rural areas. They're also young, they're old, um, they're uh, more likely to be disabled. Um, so we've really got to think about how do we help those people in those um, vulnerable groups, which is why the poverty in all its forms everywhere is, is so critically important. Now, growth is critical. 
I've talked about growth uh, a little bit already, but our argument that actually growth is only part of the solution. Uh, I'll just skate over this very quickly in the interests of time, but I can go uh, through a little bit more. Um, we know that the impact of growth on poverty is gradual and uneven. Actually, the impact of odour, or IPF more broadly, on growth is quite small. The impact of external actors to influence growth is also the track record is, is very mixed. Um, and also what I'm going to talk about now around social sector investments, those things can actually help promote growth and they can help promote the kind of growth that actually will help to reduce inequality um, and, uh, uh, and tackle uh, the, the people at the bottom. <coughs> so there are obviously a range of things um, that are needed to try and promote inclusive growth, reduce inequality and poverty. Um, we've heard about infrastructure. What we are actually focusing on in our report, not because this is everything that's needed to be done, but just because we needed to focus on something, um, are social protection, uh, education, health, um, universal health coverage, and the peace and state building goals. And I want to zero in on the social protection point here a little bit, because I think I'm sure everybody in this room knows how important education is, how important universal health coverage is. I think that argument is largely won. But I think on social protection, there's still a case to be made. And the evidence is that social protection, when it's done right, can be enormously powerful in lifting people out of poverty. Not only that, it can actually help to promote growth. It can stop people from having to uh, take coping strategies in the case of shocks, which can actually undermine long-term growth. So a coping strategy might be, for example, selling off livestock or taking children out of school in the fa face of a shock. If you have a social protection mechanism, you can avoid that happening and you can actually promote um, longer-term growth and help to ensure that that growth is sustained. There's also evidence on good local multiplier effects from uh, social protection. So particularly cash transfers. If you give people money, they will go and spend it in their local economies. That will help to promote local businesses and, and, and so on and so forth. And actually, the income multipliers have been more than two uh, in some cases. And even in fragile states, there's good evidence on the benefits of social protection. It's not always easy. We know that. It can be very, very challenging. But there are good examples of where um, cash transfers and, and cash for works programs and so on have been very effective in post-conflict situations. So it's, it's a me mechanism that can be used across uh, different contexts. I've talked about the peace and state building goals. You've mentioned those. But we need to provide social services in the context of also supporting the, the, the wider agenda. Now, for these areas, we need public financing. There's a lot of talk about private financing. Again, nobody is denying that's absolutely critical. But when we look at these big financing numbers, I think you made this point as well, we need to think about how we use the public financing. And actually, the evidence suggests that for these social sectors, it absolutely has to be public financing. Where you've had more private uh, mechanisms or reliance on user fees, it's generally uh, worse and made access much more difficult, particularly for the poorest and the most vulnerable groups. Uh, of the kind that, that, that we're focusing on. And in general, domestic public uh, finance is, is, is better. That's uh, often the, the most effective form of financing, but that's not always sufficient, I think, as we well know. Now, I know that costing is extremely unfashionable in this world. You probably won't agree, but most people think that costing what is... What could be more fashionable? <laughs> <laughs> well, you and I are probably the only people in this world who think costing is helpful. But we have nevertheless... Not just helpful, <laughs> I mean, it's essential. Fun. Essential. <laughs> it is fun. 
Um, so this is some work that um, some of our colleagues have been doing um, to feed into the flagship report that, that Kevin mentioned, was to basically look at what are the financing requirements and the financing gaps. It's a little bit complicated um, graph to explain, but essentially the blue um, bar that you've got there shows the maximum revenue that countries could potentially contribute, bearing in mind their potential tax raising capacity. This is not actually what they are raising, but what the IMF and the World Bank say that they could be raising based on their income level, structure of economy, and, and so on. Um, we're assuming no more than 50% of that can go to these sectors because obviously governments have other uh, priorities um, and the OECD average is, is around about 50%. So we've, we've said, okay, 50% of, of existing tax revenues could be spent on these sectors. 50% of existing uh, country programmable aid can be spent on these sectors, again, bearing in mind infrastructure and energy and, and, and so on and other needs. And then we've costed out what you would need for universal cash transfers, universal health coverage, and uh, universal education, um, uh, primary and lower secondary education. This is drawing on um, UNESCO and Chatham House and, and uh, other sources of, of costings for those sectors. And this is what you get to. Um, you get to an enormous gap for the very lowest income countries. Actually, you can't see the middle-income countries here, but most of them could actually do this themselves, um, which may be a controversial message in some quarters, but actually, if you look at the numbers, that's what it suggests. Um, but an enormous gap at the very uh, low income, and that is often very much fragile states. So... So there's a big need for international public finance to fill these gaps. You could also do it with other, you know, aviation tax, innovative finance, uh, reducing illicit flows and so on. That's also important. But our focus here is how do you fill this with IPF? Um, we are proposing three things that need to happen to IPF um, to enable it to, to really help uh, meet this poverty challenge. Firstly, volume and allocation. We need more of it. We've heard a lot about 0.7 and the importance of that. Um, if we met 0.7, we would have enough money to do this and more to spare. So that's really critical. Um, and we also need to allocate it more to um, the very low-income countries. That's not to say that less concessional IPF isn't important in middle-income countries. We've got another paper, which I will just give a plug to, the roadmap um, by some of my colleagues that actually talks about the importance of less concessional <coughs> IPF in middle-income, particularly lower-middle-income countries. But the most concessional forms of finance should go to this uh, low-income group. Um, we also need to think about delivery approaches, and again, my colleague from South Sudan has said this very well. We need to have a better, a more adaptive, uh, greater acceptance of risk in fragile states because that's where the challenge lies. And particularly what I wanted to, 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 to finish on is that we need some kind of mechanism for long-term financing for social protection, uh, a, a global fund, which we have provisionally called the Bolsa Familia Global, um, based on the Brazilian example, but actually it could be called anything. Essentially, it's a mechanism, a pooled funding mechanism for social protection, which we think should really be a, uh, could be a key uh, announceable in, um, in ADIS. And what I've done here is taken some of the criteria for pooled funding mechanisms that the Sustainable Development Solutions Network included in their um, really helpful report um, and said, well, how do they apply to a pooled funding for social protection? National ownership and country leadership, absolutely critical. You cannot do this without strong national ownership. Allocation to countries in need, as we've just seen, the allocation of existing IPF is not 
um, as pro-poor as it needs to be. So that's absolutely critical. Predictable fun uh, multi-year funding commitments are also important because governments won't scale up social protection programs if they think that the money is going to disappear in a year or two's time. So you need to be able to provide long-term commitments so that they can make long-term investments. An important global voice for civil society. This is something I know a lot of CSOs are very interested in. Um, financing for technology transfer. And it is um, a, a, an issue that actually you could expect different actors, private sector, public sector, to, to engage together and to think about technolo technological solutions and ID cards and biometrics and, and, and all the rest of it. So I think there's huge potential for this kind of uh, fund and to give a real boost and profile to uh, what's actually a really effective policy, but one that is really um, neglected. So I think that's my conclusion. Interested to hear feedback. Romney, thank you very much for that. Um, just two quick thoughts. I, I, I think the Bolsa Familiar global idea captures something really important, because if you look outside of China, Ambassador, which you mentioned, one of the countries that has simultaneously sustained growth, driven down poverty, and reduced inequality is Brazil. It's actually, in some ways, is one of the great insufficiently told development success stories of the last 15 years. And I think that arrangement, the, 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 the Bolsa Familia Fund in Brazil, was a critical part of, of that. And actually, it was built through many of the same processes that Jeff was describing earlier, you know, a clear strategy, Building, co building coalitions, uh, acting collectively to, to resolve a problem. The, 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 the second observation I wanted to make just before throwing it out to questions is that I, I think the, graphs that, the graph that Romney was showing is a really important one for a wider reason, and, and that is that there's sometimes an assumption that progress in development is linear. That, you, know, you draw a line from where you've come over the last 15 years on poverty, on school enrollment, on child mortality, and you project it forward. And I think it misses the point that traveling the next mile is more difficult than the mile that you just traveled, and that the closer you get to the last mile, to zero, the more difficult it becomes. And if you think of education, you, the kids who are out of school now are often out of school, you know, not because there's not a school there, but because they're in labor markets or they're forced into early marriage. So yeah, this is... This story, I think, is really about how do you reach the most marginalised and disadvantaged countries um, and, and people. It very much relates to, to the to points Mr Sabuni was, was making. So what I'd like to do now is to uh, thank the three speakers, first of all, but not to let you go yet, because we're going to have a series of questions. So uh, over to the audience for, for questions. You're not in the audience, actually. <laughs> but please. I wanted to make a comment. Uh, sure. First, uh, I thought Romilly's presentation is, was great, really great, and um, I want to get the slides, and I think that graph of showing the costing and what's within uh, the national budgets is a fundamental uh, part of wisdom. I want to uh, um, express a, a, at least a reservation or a, a, a go slow on the Bolsa Familia universal agenda. I'm rather skeptical, I have to say. And the main reason is that the successes are in uh, middle-income countries with pockets of poverty, not low-income countries with pervasive poverty. And I don't like the idea of a universal cash transfer system in a very poor country. 
I think it's not the right way to spend scarce dollars. I think the right way to spend scarce dollars is uh, raising the productivity of this uh, large, very poor place through the most basic infrastructure, help with smallholder agriculture, uh, and other inputs rather than cash transfers, which is a uh, it is right if the facilities are there, the public goods are there, you're giving money to a household to say make sure your child's immunized, but what if you have no health system? What if you have no clinic? What if you have no school? So the whole Bolsa Familia uh, transfer to the low income settings I think is not analytically correct or a high priority. The World Bank has grabbed this like nothing else, uh, but that's to me, World Bank, uh, which is, uh, if I wish they would think a little bit more uh, clearly about different conditions. So I just want to really put, I wouldn't put it as a universal proposition. If you're a middle-income country, if the United States, God, we need a Bolsa Familia. Uh, that's great. Uh, but if you are a very poor country, the urgencies, the differences are there. I'm not talking about lack of uh, protection, but I'm talking about universal cash transfers. I just wouldn't go down that road at all in the places that I know that are in low-income setting. Thank, thanks, Jeff. Je just to clarify, we, we won't have the, an internal debate mm -hmm. on the panel, yeah. at this, but I, I think the argument is, is it's not advocating for individual low-income countries to either set up these schemes or expand these schemes. It's looking at what could be done through the international aid architecture to support cash transfers to, to poor households, okay. which is a slightly different... I yeah. mean, I, I know it, I'm just concerned. Uh, sure. Yeah, let me raise the okay. concern. Okay, <coughs> concern noted. Now, let me throw it open to the, the floor. Thank you very much for the presentations. My name is Kirsten Ockfeldt. I work with MSF, Doctors Without Borders. Um, I, in view of the, of the, of the discussion around uh, sustainable development financing and especially the role of ODA, ODA um, there is also currently ongoing discussions in some of the global health initiatives around um, income classification, using in income classification to determine funding allocation, but also eligibility and graduation schemes. Um, and, and we in MSF, we, we're very worried about um, the way that we see as an overemphasis of GNI per capita, for example, as, as the, the determining indicator, um, and uh, as opposed to, for example, health needs. And so uh, we recognize, of course, there's a huge need for financial resources and the need to look at a variety of sources of funding. Uh, but what we see is uh, there's a conflict in the way the goalposts are being moved while we're not yet... Uh, reaching the MDGs. Uh, one example is the Eastern Europe, Central Asian region with increasing levels of HIV and MDR-TB, for example. Um, so while there are some initiatives that are trying to look at um, different ways to, um, to mitigate the, the limitations of income classification, such as the Equitable Access Initiative of the Global Fund with others, uh, they, we see that we still come back to the income classifications of countries as, as the determining indicator. So my question to either to Greenhill and or um, Sachs is, um, how do you see and if ODA would be um, very much focused on low-income countries or least developed countries, um, 
would it be uh, would it be possible to come come up with a complex framework for with taking into consideration the middle income countries and actually capture the health needs uh, appropriately to, to reach uh, those that are most in need? Thank, Thank you. you. So that's one for Rom Romney and Jeff to come back to. Can we go right over here now? No, so. uh, can I remind people to say who they are before they ask the question? Sure. I'm Nuria Molina from ActionAid. Um, as we were going into detail into this very interesting conversation, I was thinking actually here for this year and for the SDGs, we have two quite different, although complementary, goals or agendas. One is the one that we've just been reflecting on, which is the need to roughly finish the job we started, focused on fragile states, extreme poverty, etc., which requires a set of financing which is more limited in ways, and mobilizing this financing and mobilizing social movements in ways that we know we've done <coughs> in the past. At the same time, we have an agenda which we were discussing earlier, or that uh, Jeff was prompting us to discuss earlier, which is totally different, which is the more the longer term, how we shift the way we structure our economy and our very differently. And I see two key um, bottlenecks there. That the way of doing this, well, it requires more money to start with. And the way of doing this, including the social mobilization side of things, it's very different. It's not so much the make poverty history type of mobilization. We mobilize to help some people down there to solve extreme poverty and extreme problems. It's about how do we rethink two key obsessions, which are GDP growth obsession, and also the free market capitalism obsession. I do agree that global capitalism can give the answers, but global capitalism, it can take many forms and shapes. So how do we do this uh, successfully? Okay, uh, two, two rows back. Um, Anna Thomas, also from ActionAid, giving you a double, mine's very quick. <laughs> um, absolutely, I think we pretty much all agree on the need for more and better international public finance, but shouldn't developing countries decide for themselves what the main priorities for spending it is? Okay, thank you. And then one right, right at the back here. Good morning, uh, Jane Backhurst from British Red Cross. Um, I really welcome, and we really welcome, the, the attention as well to the issues around fragile states, given that none of the fragile states have actually met any of the MDGs, uh, and also the attention to the least developed countries. One of the points I think is still lacking um, as a mainstream uh, concept within all of these conversations in the financing for is the link between financing for development, the Zendai work, the SDG process, etc. But also across all of that, as Romani was saying earlier, the attention to resilience, what this really means, and, and how to support communities that are facing long-term stresses as well as shocks uh, and the whole linking relief, rehabilitation and development. So there's a lot of there that still needs to be translated across the piece, I think, and need brought out, especially community resilience, which is within some of the targets. But unless we're actually wrapping into this, these discussions, we stand to lose some of those okay, thank you. gains. Thanks. Thank you. Um, Ambassador, do you, do you want to... I, we'll have another round of questions for all those of you who have been waving at me. Um, Ambassador, do you, do you want to maybe just take that question? Because I, I, I guess at the heart of it is this issue of how the international summits are linked up in a way. That, you know, because Sendai is clearly an important part of the agenda, the humanitarian summit. Are, are you, to some degree, framing your discussions in the light of those, uh, at those later meetings? 
the answer is yes, to some degree we are. The, the, the challenge, of course, is that um, we need all of these processes to be linked. Hmm? Uh, basically because what we need is uh, decisions by governments and if governments do not take decisions that understand that all of these issues are interlinked, they will really, we will not really be able to reach our goals. Uh, that goes, you know, but the, the problem of course is that uh, the climate uh, summit is then coming at the very end of this. In, in, in December. And frankly speaking, I do not believe that we have sort of a, uh, good ideas on how we are going to, to link that both to the uh, summit in September on the post-2015 and to the Addis meeting. We all know that these issues uh, have to be seen together, but how we are going to do it is still work in progress. Okay, thank you. Mr. Smith, there was specifically a question on fragile states and I think relating to the point that you raised about, you know, often aid is given on terms or in forms that don't necessarily correspond to the most immediate priorities of government. Could you maybe respond to that? Yeah, yeah, I think it's quite a pertinent uh, observation or question. But actually, the communities in, this, in these countries, they know where the thorn is actually breaking. They know what their priorities are. Problem lies in terms of the capacity to state and articulate and put it in a shape, in a form that would be able to, 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 to correlate with the overall developmental or intervention agenda. But otherwise, take the case of South Sudan. The, the issues of uh, uh, infrastructure, the communities do not interact they do not know themselves. Again, this stands in the way of state building and peace building. If they, you, you were to connect the, the, to connect the country to itself, to the communities, by way of infrastructure and so on, you, you, you have a way out. If you were to provide minimum amounts of uh, energy for macro uh, financing activities to flourish, you, you have a, a solution. And then, of course, issues to do with health, education, and, and clean drinking water. This always come up uh, on top in any community kind of uh, discussions relating to these matters. Yeah, the communities must decide really what they want, and then somebody comes in to help them put it in a better shape. Thank you. Thank you very much. R uh, Rami, maybe you, if you could respond to Jeff's concerns as well, as well as other issues you might want to take up. Um, sure, yes. Uh, uh, we don't want to have an intro panel uh, uh, scrap, but um, no, I just wanted to say on social protection, yes, it's been very powerfully utilised in middle-income countries, but there's also quite a lot of evidence from low-income countries, particularly African countries, uh, Kenya, Malawi, um, we've increased investment in agricultural assets as a result of transfers in Ethiopia, uh, Zimbabwe, um, in a range of fragile states. There are actually a good range of examples of um, where cash transfers have actually really helped to, to 
reduce poverty and promote growth. And I think that's really the, the, the really critical point um, in African countries as well as the, the stable middle-income countries. It's very patchy at small scale, and that's partly why we think it's a funding mechanism that will enable countries to scale it up if they want to, related to Anna's point. I mean, nobody's saying to countries they've got to do this. They're not <coughs> successful generally when they're imposed outside from donors, but to have a long-term good quality financing mechanism so the countries who want to do it, a little bit like with, with the Global Fund and other mechanisms, actually have the su support uh, to, to do it. Can I just make one point on the in income classifications uh, point? I just want to be clear on the income classifications point. I also agree that income isn't necessarily a good um, uh, classification, middle income, low income, what does that really mean? We had a debate at the Cape Conference in 2012 about whether South Sudan was now a, a MIC, and you know, it, 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 that debate seems a little bit unreal. However, when you look at when we've actually done the costing, this is just for the social sectors, bear in mind, it doesn't cover infrastructure. Interestingly enough, the boundary of whether countries could potentially fund it domestically or the extent to which they need IPF happens to come at around the LIC-MIC threshold. So that's interesting, but I'm not saying that we need necessarily need those categorizations. Thanks. Jeff, I know the temptation is going to be to engage <laughs> on the social protection thing, and I don't want to preclude you responding on that. But I did want to ask you one other thing that, you know, I was very struck by reading the report that you and Guido did yeah. with the, the treatment of education. And for me, you know, we've spoken about this before, but it's an area of perennial frustration because, you know, everyone around the world essentially buys into the argument that, you know, if you haven't got the infrastructure in place, that's one constraint. If you haven't got education in place, that the human capital constraints are, are such that all bets are off, actually, on progress in many of the areas. And, and you mentioned that, you know, if you can't keep girls in, in secondary education, it has implications yep. for fertility, demography, for growth, for everything else. And yet, despite that, all of the evidence on education is pointing in the wrong direction. They, we have a pitiful amount that goes into primary education, and it's coming down, especially in the poorest countries, especially in fragile states. An even more pitiful amount goes into secondary education, which is a condition for making progress in primary as well. Um, and the response has been... I mean, there's just not an effective... You know, there's nothing comparable to what we've seen in the global funds in health that, you know, you, that you've been so involved in. And I am really interested in understanding you. What, what do you see as the blockage to the ambition that, that we need? And what should the framing look like for, for a sort of initiative that could make a difference in Addis? Great. Th thanks a lot. Yeah, I, it has been a big mystery for me over the 14 years that I've been advisor on the MDGs to the UN why education never got the foothold. Uh, I can tell you at the beginning of the process there was no global fund for health, there was no global fund for education. I helped to lead the fight for more donor resources for health. That was my focus in 2000, 2001. And uh, Bill Gates came in with billions of dollars personally uh, and made a transformation as a result of that. Uh, Kofi called for the Global Fund. I helped work with him on the design of that. Uh, Norway was critical at every step. I consider myself a, uh, you know, as uh, I, I hope someday, even even to, if I can have some honorary little bit of Norwegian uh, in me, because it was Gro Brundtland, it was uh, Tori Gadal, it was uh, Jonas Garstore, uh, and uh, this was transformative. Education never found that championship. 
I don't know why. Uh, and then uh, Gordon, who's great and is a great champion of this, uh, was brought in too late in the day on the MDGs, but I want him to be the champion for the SDGs uh, on this. We can make the same breakthrough. There's nothing intrinsically different. But in general, other than Norway, Sweden, Denmark, now the UK, other donors don't want to hear about money. They don't want to hear about new things. So the normal rule is you got to push hard to create something. The Global Fund was not a piece of cake, I can tell you, to just walk in and get this. The fight over getting AIDS treatment was a real fight. The fight to scale up malaria was a real fight for years and years and years. Academia always, by the way, is never on the leading edge. The role of academia is to say, prove it, prove it, prove it, prove it, prove it. Uh, and then once it's proven, they say, ah, it was obvious and it's not even important. That, that's, that, that's the role of academia. Okay, there's a useful role, prove it is a good thing, but it's not advocacy uh, and it's not where the breakthroughs come from. So we need to advocate for a global fund for education and a basic message that says, get serious with the money. Look at the gap. The money is $20 billion gap. Why is the GPE collecting $500 million a year? What's the target? What's the point? And I, you know, I was full force out for the GPE replenishment. But, there was, but even as the reality said we need 20-some billion, we had this tiny replenishment. The, Poor countries committed their own resources, which are wonderful. The headline was 28 billion collected, 27 billion of which came from the developing countries themselves, and everybody patted themselves on the back. That is not advocacy, thank you. Advocacy is to say we got a $20 billion gap, now let's go out and close that gap. Now, uh, there are some differences in the dynamics. The health was sold for proper reasons, life and death, it's immediate. On the other hand, education, everybody understands education. So we, it is sellable, but it wasn't sold the same way. And the second thing is, with the health, there were two things that there haven't been with education. One, there was Bill Gates, and we don't have the Bill Gates of education yet. So we need the Bill Gates of education. Carlos, Slim, please. Be the Bill Gates of education. We need that. Second, uh, we need the companies engaged because with health, there was pharma. And pharma was under attack for not providing the medicines. And Global Fund was a great partnership. All of a sudden, the pharma had a partner. And pharma did the right thing. It said, take it at cost take our licensing, whatever. MSF, by the way, played a heroic role in getting that done, as usual. It was a fight, but it got done. With education, we haven't had big companies involved, but the ones that should be involved now are the IT industry, basically, because that is a major input for effective education in the future. We need Huawei, Ericsson, uh, BT. We need uh, Facebook, I tried. Uh, so far, no success, but let's go back. 
We need Google. We need the big IT companies to say we're partners of the Global Fund for Education. We'll be there making sure there's connectivity, IT, access, and so forth. Now, let me turn to Romilly. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's, not, it's not me wanting to take Romilly, but we, we do need to do this brief, because otherwise we're not going to okay. have opportunities. <laughs> Could, could, you hold, could you hold that? Absolutely. What, what I'll do, I'll... Um, <laughs> you send your own I'll, I'll, uh, I'll invite you to lunch with me and Romilly. <laughs> um, so I'm not going to invite academics to respond to that uh, observation, but I, I, um, I will invite the ambassador to look into opportunities for appointing Jeff uh, Omri, mayor of whichever part of Norway he wants uh, to be appointed. Uh, it mayor. will have to be Kirchenes in the far north. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, back, back to business. Uh, I'm going to go over this, this side now, please. And if I can ask people, the, the, the shorter people can keep questions, the more questions we can fit in. So, please. Alba de Souza from the Council for Education in the Commonwealth. Two very quick questions. One. One. Uh, well, uh, uh, <laughs> One question. Water development hasn't been mentioned at all. I'm wondering whether it has been subsumed under infrastructural development, because I almost think that water development is more important than it than than energy, and the other one is maybe I'll speak with the ambassador after the session. It was to do with s small island exactly. states. Okay. Please, yeah. Hey, uh, Stacy Cram from Restless Development. Um, it's just to pick up on a point that um, the ambassador said on funding around technology, innovation, and capacity <laughs> building, and whether you could just go into, I feel like those are the words that are banded around quite a lot without any um, meaning given to them. So what would a financing in these areas look like, and what should people advocating on these areas be focusing their attentions on? Thank you. And there was one right in the back here. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Georgina, Owena Gordon from Comic Relief. Um, thank you all for really for really interesting, um, thought-provoking presentations. What I was wondering, and I was really in, um, excited, I think, a little, to see um, you mention um, civil society um, in your presentation because that seems to be a missing piece. Now I know we're talking about financing, but I wondered where where there's this sort of nexus of all these events happening, how the voice of civil society really can be um, front and centre of the debate, not just as them being recipients of, but active agents of change. Thank you. And question right here. Is there a mic? Sorry, just in the second row. Thanks. Chris Isaac from Agdevco. We hear from The Economist the world has to grow as much food in the next 40 years as it has in the past 10,000 years. We know that Sub-Saharan Africa today imports about $35 billion worth of food, which is about the same as bilateral odour. We saw from Romley's very striking chart that most of the poor in 2030 will be in Africa and they will be in rural areas, i.e. they are farmers. So the question is, what role for agriculture in the SDGs? And if I can sneak in a comment on the question of social protection, we look at whether index insurance is a solution, but it's expensive. You can't put premiums of 15, 20% onto small farmers. So okay. if there's a role for subsidy, it's, it's right there. Thank you. Um, and Where are you from, sir? Active and uh, right at the back. <coughs> uh, Chris Hoy, ODI. I just had a question about the role of developed country uh, donors. Uh, we've spoken a lot about uh, ODA. Uh, outside of Northern Europe and uh, the UK, uh, aid budgets have been slashed. Uh, aid agencies have been abolished. 
Uh, and this has led a lot of people to look to the developing world for uh, international public finance. But I was just hoping to hear some comments on the panel about uh, what role there is going to be for these uh, developed country donors into the future who maybe at the moment are heading in the wrong direction from what we'd like to see them. Okay, right in front of you, but, uh, if you could keep it short. Very quick. I mean, on mix, uh, Romilly, um, he, we've talked about this a lot, which is why you're laughing, but um, you know, you're quite right to say that, that, that mix should be able to raise these taxes and therefore should be less of a priority. The fact is that the majority of poor people live in mix, and the reality is they're not going to raise those taxes because of political um, realities in those countries. You know, you're not suddenly going to see in the next 10, 15 years all the people that should be paying suddenly paying. We should pressure them to. It's not going to happen immediately. In that context, are we just writing off their chances for decent education and health by focusing our international pressure on licks, given that the taxes are not going to be forthcoming in a realistic assessment? Okay, thank you for that. Well, um, let me go back to the panel. I'll start on this side. Jeff, do you, do you, want, do you want to maybe start with that pressure? Sure. I, I think that's an issue that goes right to the heart of the the agenda for the for the Addis conference. Uh, the, the basic point I would say is if uh, middle-income countries can do it but aren't doing it, don't exaggerate what outsiders can do in that context because it's not so much. <clears throat> the reason that you can have a lot of uh, leverage in poor countries is that they want to do it but can't do it. But if you have a country that can do it but isn't doing it, it's not going to be determined from the outside. So. It's just an exaggeration to say that we're going to decide Brazil's fate or Mexico's fate or Thailand's fate. Because they can afford this, they should do it, they should be part of the international commitments. And if there are poor people there that are suffering because of whatever the historical, political, socioeconomic legacies, the outside world's ability to navigate that is quite low. The reason it works in poor countries is that they want to stay alive, and they want some help, and we can make a difference <laughs> with the added resources. So if you're really looking at efficacy, uh, the reason why a middle-income country isn't doing it is relevant for your analysis. And I think that all of the uh, reasons, therefore, point to this kind of analysis. What are your needs? And get on with it. And if you don't get on with it, the rest of the world can't save you. There has to be a measure of subsidiarity in this. And I'm concerned about it two ways. There has to be a kind of realism in this whole process, which is the realism that the rich world's rich enough to make the material difference so that people are not suffering the way that they're suffering. That's one bit of realism. And the other bit of realism is we don't run other people's lives, and we shouldn't be attacking them to uh, change their governments. We shouldn't be making coups. We shouldn't be doing all of this. That's the second bit of realism. Third bit of realism is that crisis countries, we can never keep up with these wars. That's so if we really want to do development, it's not more humanitarian aid to war zones and conflict zones, it's to get these conflicts shut down. The war in South Sudan should never have happened. It is an incredible waste and a tragedy. That one, I think, is mostly internal, actually. not Now, I believe that a lot of the wars we have in the world are US-caused, uh, not uh, just 
naive and then pumping huge amounts into these conflict zones is not development. It's pathetic. Let's stop the wars. So that's a third bit of realism. And a fourth bit of realism is that we can't solve problems when people can't solve it themselves. And the subsidiarity doctrine is a real good doctrine, which is you solve the problems at the lowest levels possible. And if a country can solve its problems but isn't, the rest of the world can give advice, can make tables, can point out faults. But we shouldn't topple even dictators, in my view. Uh, we should say to the, you know, it's, it's not our, you can't save somebody else that isn't in that position to save themselves. And for the middle-income countries, they can do this stuff. And they should. Brazil showed it. So let's put the attention where the need is. And if by chance you unlock not 0.7% of GDP, but 1.7% of GDP, then we'll reconsider the conversation. I'm all for more if you can get it. But given what we have right now, let's focus on the places that are ready to do it and absolutely need it. Jeff, can, can I just push you on one aspect of that? Because, you know, the, a couple of years ago, there was a quite heated debate here about India yeah. in this context. Now, you know, I, I know on the sort of indicators that Romilly was using that, you know, even if you had much higher marginal tax rates in India, you, there'd be a financing gap. But, you know, the strategic decision that was taken yeah. in DFID was that, you know, essentially, you know, that India is no longer an aid story, right. it's a national development story. And, and I guess, you, you know, there's a lot of gray area countries with, as the questioner asked, you know, an awful lot of poor people <coughs> in them that, you know, that run the risk of falling through the net here. And I, I, so I just taking India as an example, yeah. I mean, get, just, you know, what would your response be on Yeah, that? so <laughs> India is not an example. It is a civilization. Uh, and it's unique in the sense that it is it's not unique. It's got one partner in this. It's got almost 1.3 billion people right now. And therefore, it is distinctive in that it always received very low aid per capita throughout its history because aid per capita is inverse to capita in this world. It is not given on the basis of these need charts. Aid per capita is also given in country units because country units vote in the UN, because country units host military bases, because country units do things per country. And so if you do any aid allocation statistic, you'll find that tiny countries get hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars of aid per capita because someone wants Tonga or Vanuatu or some other place to be their friend for some reason. Whereas if India were its states rather than 1.3 billion people, there would have been never a debate about this issue. For the last 30 years, India would have gotten vastly more aid per capita. Now, having said that, the question then is exactly as you posed it. Do Romilly's calculations, what are the needs? Has India graduated in that sense or not graduated? Let's make the calculation and do it on that basis. Would you like to respond? I mean, there, there, are, there are a range of questions, I think, potentially very relevant for a fragile <coughs> state context. Um, let me start with the issue of uh, donor input. 
I think the donors are already doing quite a lot. They are talking to each other. They are coordinating to a certain extent. But I think they need to harmonize. They need to harmonize uh, among themselves and with this group of fragile countries. That's absolutely essential. I speak from experience. Takes a lot of uh, effort to create that kind of harmony. It's absolutely essential and it contributes to aid effectiveness. And it reduces the time on the host country to do business. Infrastructure, the spin-offs, the externalities of creating a road, I think, are quite enormous. And you just create a road, a lot goes with it. We're talking about a delivery of health services, educational, clean water, uh, state building, and peace building. All this could easily find their place and facilitation by just creating a road between point A and point B. Civil society has a lot to do in the coming dispensation, SDGs and so on. You need to sensitize the communities. You need to inform them. I can tell you the, the, what happened during the MDGs and the new era that is coming may not be all that obvious to the communities back home and elsewhere. And I think uh, the role of the civil society needs to be clearly stated or emphasized somewhere in the design of the SDGs. There's quite a lot to, to, to do about that. Agriculture, I, I cannot think of a single uh, impact to food security uh, outside the area of agriculture. Production, whether for commercial purposes or for or subsistence farming and so on. I think the single most effective guarantee to food security is actually agricultural uh, production. So these issues are quite, quite important. And of course, I still want to, 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 to emphasize the role of uh, taxation in these countries in order to not only create capacity, but really to realize the, the, the financing uh, inputs to, 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 to the implementation or the execution of these SDGs. Uh, I could go on and on, but I think this is uh, what I want to... Thank you. It's a point very well, well made. Actually, one of the disadvantages of modern technology is you get constant reminders on your iPad of how far off track you've come in terms of keeping to the time. <laughs> so uh, thank you to my colleagues for uh, <laughs> providing me that reminder. Um, what, what I'm going to ask the last two speakers to do is, is maybe to take up one or two of the, of, of the questions and also provide uh, some closing remarks. So, Romilly. Okay. Um, uh, three, if it's closing remarks, four points. Quickly, um, on the mixed point, I absolutely agree with you. And also, Johnny, if you look at the poverty trajectories, um, it's not going to be a mixed problem for very much longer. I know there's discussions about that, um, but poverty is concentrated in mixed now, but actually most of those countries will grow people out of poverty pretty quickly. So I completely agree with, with you also on the role of how much external actors can actually do in those countries. Um, the point that Chris Hoy made about other donors, and particularly non-DAC donors, 
for me, that's a question that I would like to know the answer to, because it seems to me fairly obvious that, um, A, we need more contributions from lots of these countries, and B, we need more transparency uh, around it, and we need common metrics and some way of uh, reporting, although people don't like the word reporting, publication of information um, on that. But I don't know how politically you get that. So I don't know whether the ambassador has so many ideas, but it seems every time I talk to anyone about this, people say, oh, it's incredibly difficult, they'll never agree to anything. So if there's any sort of option for getting any sort of targets or even aggregate numbers of the amount of IPF these countries are providing, I think that would be really, really valuable. Um, Civil society, yes, I agree, absolutely critical to this agenda, both in terms of the mobilization, as other colleagues have said, also in terms of delivery, a lot of these services, some of the good examples around social protection, again, have had civil society very much front and center involved in, in those, so absolutely critical. Um, and um, I can't remember what my final point, point was, which is... You have a final point? No, I mean, I just, I guess, I mean, we can perhaps agree to disagree on the on the, uh, the social protection fund, but I think um, my sense is that it is something that could be announceable, it's a deliverable, it would make a big difference, it would, uh, you know, pooled financing would actually have a big impact. So I think if we want something easily announceable, winnable, effective in uh, in Addis or thereafter, I, you know, from my sense, this is this is a big hit. But let's maybe carry on the conversation. Sure, on the fund, yeah. <laughs> I think this is a longer discussion, but it, you know, there's clearly ideas to be de debated there, Ambassador. Mm. Well, I think this has been an extremely interesting uh, discussion, and in particular the latest discussion between Romilly and and Jeff on on this. I, I think that's uh, something we really should follow up on and. Uh, uh, you know, because I think it, it we, at least we have identified an area where we need to do uh, we need to do something. I think that's a key. Let me uh, just by way of concluding say that you know this has been understandably discussion about public finance, but uh, as you will have understood from my introduction, uh, very much of this is also about sort of how do we unlock also the private sector finance, uh, both business community and investors. And I, you know, and here is should also we need to have a discussion on how ODA can unlock these sources. It, it's 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 difficult, uh, but we need to do it. And let me just mention energy as an example. We know that uh, approximately 1.3 billion people is without uh, access to energy, and it's basically it's India, it's uh, Nigeria, it's Ethiopia, and uh, DRC, and a few other places, uh, Bangladesh. Uh, we, we know that if we are to be successful in this, we need a cooperation between uh, public finance, uh, ODA, and we need uh, the international business community, the investor community. Today we are investing approximately 9 billion US dollars to get access to energy. We know we need annually, the next few years, if we are to be successful, approximately 45 billion. That's really, you know, if you're talking about trillions of dollars out there, that's really not much. But if you are focusing only on public finance, we will not be able to do it. So here we really need to see a cooperation between all the different sectors. So we need decisions from national governments. We need decisions from the business community, from investors. And we need from the, what I call <laughs> loosely sort of the international community. And here, of course, in particular, the multilateral development banks. And they need to get much more involved in these kinds of discussions if we are to be successful. And 
Last but not the least, we, of course, we need civil society. As has been pointed out, we need civil society to put pressure in each and every country to move forward, and we need civil society also to put pressure on us when we're moving forward, first to Addis, then to September in New York, and then in Paris in December. But thank you so much. Ambassador, thank you. Um, j just um, a couple of thoughts to close. Oh, Kevin, can I have of course. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I thought you I were know. just coming down the table. Jeff, I, I, I know if I say no, it'll make absolutely no difference. <laughs> That's good. Rather, All right. Rather, Very good. Uh, I just I did want to take a moment to disagree on uh, agreeing to disagree uh, because I would rather have an agreement rather than a disagreement. Um, but I want to come back to the agriculture because that's the missing fund, and that's where the social protection is going to come in. Uh, we need to help smallholder farmers uh, to be more productive. And uh, if you give cash and some of it shows up in agriculture, I'm not surprised. But if you actually help agriculture, more of it will show up in agriculture. You'll get productivity. You'll get nutrition. You'll get incomes. You'll get food security. You'll get poverty reduction. Uh, and so this is where that social protection should come in through helping smallholder farmers. Uh, this is a very high priority. Africa absolutely could be food sufficient. Not even a close doubt about that because it could so easily replace the imports of staple grains right now by a very modest increase of productivity of yield, that is. And that simply requires better inputs on the farm. It is not even in question. There are thousands of studies that show uh, at uh, a farm post uh, what could be accomplished. Instead of getting 1.2 uh, tons per hectare, you can easily get three, five. And now, with solar-powered irrigation, this I just want to mention, <laughs> just solar-powered irrigation, which needs no energy storage, it's providing energy for pumping on, in real time with the sunshine is so much cheaper than diesel, so much more sustainable than diesel, and water management is one of the core needs of African agricultural productivity. We have yet another breakthrough, another tool in our toolkit. So this is the, social, the true social protection fund is an agricultural smallholder uh, protection this will boost incomes, productivity, food security, nutrition, health, the whole works. And that one we're going to agree to agree on, I hope. I see uh, <laughs> we're in danger of agreement breaking out across the, <laughs> across the panel. Je Jeff, just to add one point to that, and I think this relates to Mr. Sabuni's earlier contribution, is that, you know, that there are these huge untapped gains in productivity, as you mentioned. But the other critical thing... You know, the fact that you can export rice from Thailand or Vietnam to West Africa and outcompete a rice farmer in Senegal exactly. is extraordinary. And, and it relates to something that one of our teams here <coughs> work a lot on, uh, led by Dirk Willem, which is the internal barriers to trade, which are an important um, consideration. The lack of infrastructure, which drives up costs uh, as well. So, you know, I think it, it comes back to your infrastructure point, actually. Could, um, since the various panellists have unilaterally taken the opportunity to make second closing remarks. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I believe there are over 40 
countries that are clearly fragile, and the number seems to be growing, unfortunately. But about 22 of these countries have clearly come out to admit their state of fragility, and they are members of the G7+. Plus. They do not want to be in that club. That is not a club to be there permanently. They want to exit. They want to come out. They clearly require uh, understanding through their dialogue with the international community. They have come to this uh, uh, New Deal arrangement. The, 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 the roadmap is known. What needs to be done is known. And I think the SDGs should take this on board. They do not want to remain in that club, and they, 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 they deserve the attention of the international community. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I have another quick uh, closing remarks. Now. Um, I wanted to make two brief points. I was, I was very struck, Ambassador, by the point that you made about energy, because if you look, it, it's not just that we're starting from a bad place of 1.3 billion with no electricity. But if you look at the scenarios that have been developed by the International Energy Agency, McKinsey's and others, even the most ambitious ones, they still, in the case of Africa, they still have 30% with no electricity in 2040, never mind 2030. So, you know, we're on the wrong trajectory here. And it's a classic global fund type challenge, actually, you know, that we have these low cost solar technologies, we have this huge unmet demand that you know mm. people can't afford the $300 mm. to connect to the grid mm. in in mm. Kenya mm. they can't afford the tar you know these very high cost tariffs but if there were financing mechanisms yeah. in place to sort of link the demand to the technology <coughs> it could really that i mean that is trans transformation yeah, that we're absolutely. talking about so you know i think reflecting on what could come out of addis to address that it, you know it seems to me a really important part of the story um, the the, the, the other point I, I wanted to make is that, you know, I sometimes feel sitting here in London and listening to the debates around Addis and the SDGs that we, we sometimes forget what's at stake. Mm. And, I, and I think, as you know, you've made very clear, there's an awful lot at stake here for poor people in your country and in other parts of the world. And we really need to make sure that you know, we capture what Jeff did so brilliantly right at the mm. beginning to say you, this is a moment for humanity yeah. that you know it's a it's a fork in the road yeah. if you like if we carry on mm. as we are we're going to lose an opportunity to, to fundamentally improve the human condition to put it in in those terms i think secondly it's evident that all of these things are linked that you know, you're leading a really important mm. process but if we get that wrong you know it's going to make us look silly when we adopt ambitious sdgs without the sort of the financing framework you know, it's going to derail anything ambitious coming out of um, out of Paris, which would be a, a disaster on, on a on a on a planetary scale. So, you know, I, I think working across the summits is is obviously critical, and I, and I think also in a lot of the questions and the speakers have made this point that w there's a lot of different pillars we need to put in place to change the trajectory we're on. That you know, research and evidence have a really clear role to play. And I, and I think the debate between Jeff and Romney was great on this, to sort of seriously debate evidence-based um, ideas. Secondly, the ideas without political impetus behind them are, are not going to work. You know, we need the social movement, but we need the smart political strategy. You know, we need to do on the progressive side what the Koch brothers do so brilliantly on the other side of the equation and sort of and, and, and make that work. And I think lastly, you know, we need to work together 
on this and get out of our silos. You know, you know, it's great to have you here, and I'm I'm hoping over the the months ahead that ODI can work closely with you, and that with all of you, you know, from the NGO community, from the business community, from the research community, you know, and from governments that are trying to make a difference, that we'll have an opportunity to work together. So I want to say a huge thank you to all of our panelists, which I'm sure you're joining. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.